Right now we're studying Acts 1 to 11, eight weeks, looking at the subject of what does it mean to multiply. Our aim is to try and ask three critical questions. Question one, what were the ingredients that led to the spread of the gospel in the early church from a small group of disciples to a religion that spread all over the Roman Empire? What were the dynamics involved? What were the ingredients or the things that the Holy Spirit used to deploy these people for great gospel influence? That's the first question. Question two, what is it that God is calling our church, College Park Church, whether here at North Indy or at Castleton or at Fishers, what's he calling us to do in 2018? Joe mentioned that we have a really important elders meeting coming up Monday night. At the end of the month, we have an elders retreat, and we're thinking and praying about how do we help you as a congregation get more engaged in ministry and in small groups, and what does it mean for you to belong at your church? We're thinking through what does it look like to, to serve churches in our community. Joe mentioned the adoption, the potential adoption of the Rock Bible Church in Greenwood. That's just one of many conversations that we have on a regular basis with churches in our community that are struggling or those that are closing, frankly, or areas of our city where we'd like to plant a church, like we have a, a vision for potentially planting a multi-ethnic church in Pike Township sometime in 2018 or 19. We're asking ourselves, what does it look like to deploy more people overseas, and how can we release more and more leaders? How can we raise up people in all sorts of marketplace roles, and how can we send you out into the world? Remember last week we, we said that the church should not be seen as a cruise ship, and really the church shouldn't be seen as a battleship, but the church should be seen as an aircraft carrier. And that, that relates to the third question, which is this matter of what is your personal spirit-empowered mission? In other words, of all the people in the world that God could have saved, if you're a follower of Jesus, he saved you. And why you? Nothing special about you. You're normal, sinful, and yet God set his love on you. And then, if you're a follower of Jesus, it means also that the spirit came upon you and you have unique gifts a way that you see the world, how you process information, things that you're good at that other people would look at and just go, I don't know how you do that. And it's because you got a gift. And the question is, why has God given you those gifts? And then he's placed you in a neighborhood or in relationships near you. And why has God put those people around you? The question is, what is your spirit-empowered mission? What I'm trying to help you understand is that the church's greatest opportunity to reach this world doesn't come through Sunday morning services, doesn't come through the programs or the strategies that we have. It comes through you out in the world. For instance, just think of how many people you came in contact with this week, just how many conversations that you had, how many potential opportunities to, to move the conversation from ordinary things of life into gospel conversations. Let's just let's take the number 25 as a safe number. Throughout the course of this week, interactions with 25 people. If you take our standard Sunday morning attendance, multiply that times 25 people, that's 95,000 potential contacts out in the world. We can't house 95,000 people at 96th in town, but by sending you out into the world, our greatest opportunity for gospel outreach takes place. So we're thinking about what does it mean to, to multiply? What does it mean to be mobilized for the purpose of multiplication? And last week we learned that the vision of the New Testament is for the work of Jesus to continue. That Acts 28 may be the ending of the inspired book called Acts, 
But the story of God's multiplication movement is continuing. That Jesus wasn't plan A, plan A and the church plan B. That his aim was to come to earth, to die, to rise again from the dead, to ascend to heaven, and then to empower his disciples to carry on his mission. Now the second ingredient that we're gonna look at this morning is the matter of prayer. And I wanna suggest to you that prayer is the fuel of all gospel movements. It's the thing that's behind the scenes creating empowerment, creating boldness, creating the movement of the gospel. We'll see this morning the priority that the early church gave to prayer. And the purpose of this is I want us to ask ourselves, what is our personal priority when it comes to prayer? And what is our corporate priority as a church as it relates to prayer? You see, gospel movements always involved prayer movements. I've been involved in a few movements that could even be called mini revivals. And invariably, behind the scenes, when you trace the story back, you can find a band of people who are just committed to bringing heaven down by virtue of their commitment to prayer. Charles Spurgeon says this about prayer, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a grace-o-meter. And from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. I want that last line just to sink in. One of the first tokens of God's absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. That statement, along with what we're gonna see today in the book of Acts, just candidly is a little alarming to me. It should be a little sobering for all of us. Let me give you a couple reasons why. It should be sobering because, well, this morning at seven o'clock to 7.30, I was praying and asking the Lord for 100 people who would come and pray. We had 225 people who came to pray over you, to pray for the service, for pray, to pray for God to begin moving. I was so encouraged and so, so blessed by that because on the other end of the perspective, if I can be honest, I have some concerns about how, as a church, we're doing in this matter of prayer. And look, I've been here long enough that I can't blame anybody for where we are at this point in time. If there's any problems or issues, I've probably somehow created them as the lead pastor of this congregation. So when I say what I'm gonna say next, I'm not saying, hey, this is on you, I'm saying this is on us. The reality is, is when I started in 2008, we launched a Sunday evening prayer meeting, and that prayer meeting was um, really well attended. We had probably four or 500 people consistently throughout the course of the next two to three years. Attendance was about 2,300 or so of the congregation, about 500 or so people coming to pray. But interestingly enough, as our church has grown like this, our prayer meeting attendance has gone like this. In fact, in December, we had the lowest attended prayer meeting we've ever had in 10 years. Crazy thing was, it was one of the best prayer meetings we've ever had. The section right here was full. We had maybe 200 people. We prayed for widows, and, and God, God showed up. I mean, it was crazy. It was like you looked around, and you're like, who's here? And then you realized, and God's here. And it, it was so incredible and so amazing. But this trend of attendance goes up and prayer meeting goes down. Church, that's, we gotta think about that. Because the reality is we can give a million dollars away to global missions to try and reach unreached people groups. We can try and take neighborhoods in Brookside. 
We can have churches come and say, hey, would you adopt us? We could plant other churches and things of that sort. And if the influence of our church continues to grow wider and wider, but our prayer commitment grows shallower and shallower, the reality is something's incredibly wrong. The fact of the matter is what's true of your life can also be true of a church, and that is that our prayerlessness can be our greatest statement about our self-sufficiency. We can trust in our programming, trust in our strategy, we can trust in our, our money, we can trust in our ingenuity, we can love our orthodox theology, we can celebrate our exegesis, we can even have great things like think, but if we don't pray, there will be no power. We'll have all the structures, all the forms, all the stuff, and there'll be no substantial life change. Think with me a minute about what God may want to do through our church that he chooses not to do because he's, he knows full well what we'll do if we do it without praying. I think there's some things in my life, some things in our church that God intentionally withholds back because he wants us to be desperate to seek him so that we won't touch it and say, well, look what we did. Instead, God's ultimate aim is for us to say, look what God did. So this morning, I wanna, I wanna lean into this and help us to think through this core ingredient of the church as it relates to prayer. I wanna show you that in Acts 1, what we find is a commitment to wait together in regular prayer. The early church was marked by a commitment, a conviction, that we're gonna wait together in regular prayer. Here's the first thing. We find in the book of Acts there was this commitment you can even think of it as obedience to wait. I want you to notice that the first action that the disciples took after the ascension of Jesus was to go back to Jerusalem and wait. The text tells us that they returned, verse 12, to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Now they had been told by Jesus to do this. Acts chapter one and verse four says, and while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now just take note of this. That the first thing that Jesus tells his disciples to do is to go back and wait. They didn't go back and develop a plan. They didn't go back and hold a large meeting they didn't go back and create a program. They didn't go back and write a book, even an inspired one. They didn't go back and raise money. They didn't go back and train leaders. They didn't go back and start knocking on doors. No, 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 no. The first thing they did was they went back and they waited. They were to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. According to verse 13, they not only went back to Jerusalem, but they also gathered in the upper room. Some commentators think this may be the same upper room where Jesus and the disciples enjoyed the Lord's Supper. Maybe the same room where, after Peter's arrest, the disciples gathered in Acts chapter 12. We're not sure. What we do know is that there's about 120 people who are gathered in the room, and we also have a list of their names. Gathered in this room are people who would be responsible for the spread of the gospel. Verses 13 and 14 list the names of these 11 disciples, and as well, let's just know that there's other people who are there as well. Women, Mary, and the brothers of Jesus. These people were the core group through which the gospel would spread. And this is an amazing group. This is, you could think of this like this is the A team and they did amazing things. Peter becomes the leader of the church. He, or the spokesman for these disciples. He preaches in modern day Turkey and likely founded the church in Rome. 
John is banished to the Isle of Patmos. He later writes the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. James, along with James of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, were key leaders in the church of Jerusalem. Andrew is believed to have preached the gospel in Scythia. Philip first preached the gospel in Samaria, according to Acts chapter 8. Thomas, it's believed he ministered in Iran and Afghanistan. Bartholomew likely traveled to India. Matthew not only wrote the gospel of Jesus' life, but he also preached in the city of Parthia. Thaddeus, who in the text is called Judas, the son of James, was likely a missionary to Turkey and Syria and Iraq. And then we have the two brothers of Jesus, both Jude and James. Their names aren't listed here, but we know their names. They both wrote New Testament books, and James became the pastor of the influential church of Jerusalem. So, like, this group of people here, they're going to be deployed, and they're going to change the landscape of Christianity around the world. But the first thing they did before they spread all over the world was they waited why is this important? Well, it's important theologically because it connects these disciples to the ministry of Jesus. Later on, in Acts chapter two, we'll see the coming of the Holy Spirit. While these disciples are praying, the Holy Spirit will come. And in Luke's way of thinking, this is an exact replica of what happened to Jesus. That while he's in the water of, of, of the baptism of John, he's praying in Luke chapter 3, and the Spirit comes. So he's in the water, he's baptized, and then he's baptized Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So praying, and then comes the Spirit. Same thing with the disciples. Because they are now the ones who carry on the work of Jesus, that they are then praying, and they're baptized as well, but not with John's baptism. No, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Luke wants you to see the connection between Jesus' ministry and the disciples' ministry. And as well, Luke, no doubt, wants you to understand, and Jesus wanted to build this into the thinking of the disciples, that their ministry work needed to be saturated with prayer. I mean, after all, it was Jesus who would go away for long periods of time to pray and to seek the Father's face. In fact, before he called his disciples, Luke 6 tells us that he prayed all night. So this prayerful communion was a central part of Jesus' ministry. But even more, this waiting is an important reminder at a very foundational level for these disciples and for the church, even us, that they would need and we would need to be filled with the power of God through the Holy Spirit. That our success in ministry, their success in ministry, would not come by virtue of their own strength, but they would be filled with the power of God. Such that the hallmark of the church is such that you could see that God is doing things, and you look at that and you marvel, not only that God would work through you, but you wonder, how in the world did God do that at all? The question I have to ask you, friend, is this. Is there any marvel or wondering in your life, or is everything explainable by virtue of you know how these things happen? It may be that God intentionally hinders some of the things that you do, some conversations that just don't seem to go anywhere, the heart of a child that just can't seem to be reached, and part of the problem, part of the message that God's trying to deliver to you is this. You are trying to do this all on your own. It's not how the church started. Now it continues. In fact, this is one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul, as it relates to the armor of God, includes praying at all times in the Spirit. He says this, after listing all of these armaments, he says, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. The idea is keep praying. Whatever you do, don't stop praying. That's the point. Have you stopped praying? 
Has the pain in your life or the struggles or the disappointments that have taken place caused you to be silent? Has your familiarity with the gospel, maybe your expertise in teaching, maybe you've raised enough children so you know the equation, so to speak, and so as a result, you don't pray like you did when your children first came in your home. Or maybe now that all your kids are gone and your career is sort of settled, your, your, your prayer life isn't the same as what it was before. Oh, be careful, friend, because what can happen is you can settle into this subtle self-sufficiency and begin to think, I got it. I got this. I'm experienced. I'm wise. I'm skilled. And it may be that God may have even recently brought something into your life just to remind you, bro, you don't got this, let alone your grammar. So God often calls us to wait, and some of you may be in a waiting position even today. Can I just encourage you to embrace the waiting? If God has you in a season where he's asking you to wait, embrace it as potentially a prelude and a preparation for what God has next. Isaiah 64, 4 says, God works for those who wait for him. Do you know God's working even in your waiting? There's a Bible in my office, it's a a study Bible, and I used that Bible in 1996 and 1997 as the Lord was in the process of calling Sarah and me to our first church. And inside that Bible, so it was a long period of waiting, of seeking him, just, just gut-wrenching prayers of trying to discern God's will and which way do we go and what do we do And inside that Bible is the record of a journey of God's hammering out of his grace in our lives and chiseling away aspects of self-sufficiency. That Bible for me is a record of the school that God put us through before he answered our prayers. Some of you are right in the middle of writing that kind of book. God's got you in a position where you're having to learn how to wait, you're learning how to to wrestle, you're praying, you're you're, you're seeking him. I just wanna remind you, this waiting period that you're in, it is not a waste. Embrace the waiting. And then secondly, this waiting is important to be reminded that waiting isn't just the preparation for the work, that waiting in prayer is actually the work of ministry. Meaning, Don't think of this waiting season. These disciples weren't just waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, but God was so working in them that as they're praying together, something's happening inside of them. It means that no matter where God has you in life, prayer can be the means by which you do the work of ministry. Some of you may may look at your life, perhaps you're a little older, maybe you have grandchildren, you don't have as much energy as you used to in years gone by, and you might wonder, what? What, what use can I be? Let me tell you what use you can be. Be that grandma or grandpa who has a list of prayer requests and you storm the gates of heaven with the beautiful requests to pray for the people who you love. To be able to be the kind of person who intercedes day after day after day for the needs of, of, of the people who you care for. In fact, you may be here today because somebody's been praying for you. You may be here, not as a grandma or a grandpa, you may be a young person or a middle-aged person and you're here in this very room, you're listening to this message because somebody has prayed you all the way into here. And my question for you is, why not simply 
embrace the work of God that he wants to do in your life and the faithful prayers of people who loved you and why not see that God's trying to write a story in you he wants you to come to faith in Christ. He wants you to give up on trying to run your own life. And somebody that loves you has been praying for you, which got you here today, and none of that's by mistake. See, God works for those who wait for them, for him. And that means that we need to see prayerful waiting as something that we need to build into our lives. It was not by mistake that the first thing the disciples did was to prioritize this waiting. What happens is that when we prioritize prayer, it makes a loud protest against our self-reliance. You ever had this thought, I'm so busy today, I can't stop to pray. I got so many things to do, there's no way that I could linger for just even 10 to 15 minutes in prayer. Do you know that's a lie? You got plenty of time to pray. In fact, by praying, we give evidence that we really believe that God can take care of the rest of our day. Paul Miller, in his excellent book, the praying life, or a praying life, says this, time in prayer makes you even more dependent upon God because you don't have much time, as much time to get things done. Every minute spent in prayer is one less minute where you can be doing something productive. So the act of praying means that you have to rely more on God. The point is that the early church begins with waiting on God. Prayer is vital to multiplication because of what it does through us, but how it begins to do something in us. So there's a commitment to wait. Secondly, in this text we find that there was a commitment to pray together. The second ingredient we find here is there is this priority of corporate prayer. As the early church waited, they prayed and noticed that they did it together. Can I just remind you that your personal prayer time is really important, but remember the Lord's Prayer when Jesus said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us, the idea is a, a, a communal corporate prayer gathering together. If you were to pray with people from different uh, nations around the world, you would find that the vast majority of people around the world pray together as much as they pray individually. In fact, in some parts of the world, they wonder why people pray individually at all. Acts chapter one, verse 14 says, and these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. New Living Translation says they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. So the, the idea is that they were united, they were persistent, and they were dependent. Even, even though they came from all walks of life, they still gathered and they prayed together. Even though their leader was gone, Jesus was now ascended, they gathered to pray. Men, women, young, old, professional, common, they were there all together in prayer. And the Greek word one accord, or that Phrase one accord means they were of one mind. The idea is they shared the same mission. They shared the same purpose. It's the same thing we saw in Romans 15 and verse six when we talked about worship when Paul says, together with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were unified together. There's something beautiful about praying with people who are very different than you. Things you can learn from them. Know that you serve the same God, even though you don't even maybe speak the same language. One of my favorite prayer meetings to lead, I get to do it about every three years. 
the past I've been able to do it is with Child Evangelism Fellowship. They have an international gathering, and I've been privileged to be a person who leads prayer for this gathering, about a thousand leaders from all over the world. And I'll tell you, there is nothing like leading prayer with brothers and sisters from Africa and Southeast Asia. Those brothers and sisters, they know how to pray. Folks from South Korea, man, they're having a party up on the balcony the last time we were, I was praying. Pray out loud all together at once. They know how to be able to pray together in a way that is just meaningful and powerful and significant. And listen, there are some things that we can learn from brothers and sisters who come from different backgrounds and, 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 and different languages and even different countries because there's something about their level of dependence because in some cases they have to pray because they don't know what else to do. They don't have the resources, don't have the history, don't have the strategy, so to speak. And one of the things we just need to think about and kind of meditate on a little bit is the fact that maybe we're just so good at figuring life out that we're actually not good at all. Maybe we're so good at strategizing and thinking through our plans and trying to figure out which direction we should go instead of asking the Lord, God, what, what direction do you want us to go? You see, the church should be marked by unified prayer. When the church is prayerless, it means that we've drifted from our collective mission. It means that we've, we've failed to realize or failed to remember what it is that we're really all about. That when the church prays, she realizes that there is a struggle against rulers and authorities and against cosmic powers. When the church gets that, the church prays together. Do you know that the problems in our community, the problems in your home, the problems around us relate to this struggle against spiritual forces that wage war on the hearts and minds of believers. That there is this struggle and this battle and those who understand this are inclined to pray. Those who don't fail to realize the significance of the war that's really taking place. The Bible consistently calls us to pray with perseverance. Listen to Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Jesus said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Luke 18, Jesus told his disciples a parable that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Do you know that there's some things in your life that God simply is not going to do things that he wants to do, but he won't do them unless you pray. Because God's aim isn't just for you to have the marriage that you want. His aim isn't just for you to have the kids that follow Jesus like you'd want. His, his aim is not just to answer your prayer about your future employment. The aim is not for him to just simply answer your request about how to bring reconciliation into a relationship. God certainly wants all of those things, but more than all of that, he wants the right you to go into those things, and so therefore, often God holds back the answer because he knows that by holding it back, it gets us on our face to pray, which is part of his end game. That's why the church prays over and over. Peter and John perform their first miracle on the way to prayer. When persecution begins in Acts chapter 4, the church gathers for prayer. Prayer was how they ordained leaders. 
When Peter was in prison, when it was very likely that he would be killed because James had just been beheaded, the church leaders gather to pray in Acts chapter 12. And when Saul is converted and becomes Paul, one of the markers of his genuine conversion is that God says to Ananias, behold, he is praying. So you can trace the story of the church, you can trace the spread of the gospel, and you'll find a saturation of prayerful dependence. When you look at revival movements, you can see there was a a small group of people who were praying and seeking God's face. For instance, behind the English revival that happened in the late 1700s, there was prayer meetings that were happening. On December 31st, 1738, George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley, four other preachers and 60 Christians prayed from New Year's Eve night into the first day of the year, and the effect of those meetings was substantial on Whitfield. Ian Murray says this, these made Whitfield feel through all his soul that he ought to do everything to win souls, and that he could do anything he might attempt. Prayer meetings were to Whitfield what the third heavens were to Paul, the finishing school of his ministerial education. He was as much indebted to them for his unction as to Pembroke College for his learning. So let me ask you, where is your confidence and where really is your hope? What are we as a church depending upon? Because the reality is is that if we're going to multiply to reach kids, to reach neighbors, to reach our city, to reach our nation, to reach the world, we have to pray. And what if, what if we're just 20 minutes of logged prayer away from God moving in ways that would blow our minds? If God is gonna use us in accordance with his sovereign plan, then we have to be willing to meet together. We have to make sacrifices to gather together. We have to be part of this, this consistent pattern of meeting to seek God's face, that prayer must be a part of the fabric of the church or multiplication will not be a part of our story. So this church was committed to prayer, together, waiting, and they were committed to doing it regularly. Go now to Acts 2 and verse 42. The the final ingredient that I just want to highlight here is in a summary statement that's found in Acts chapter 2. This happens after Pentecost, which we'll look at next week. And what happens is at Pentecost, there's this massive conversion. 3,000 people are saved. This beautiful outpouring of the Spirit. They speak in foreign languages, and people hear the gospel in, 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 in their native tongue, and thousands of people are converted. And those sort of mountaintop experiences are incredible. But then Luke wisely adds this summary statement about, but the church moved back into this regular rhythm. And in verses 42 to 43, he describes the community life of the church, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So there was power that comes, and yet there's this regular rhythm that involves teaching. They, they learned about the life of Jesus and what it meant to follow him. They, they enjoyed fellowship. We'll talk about this in two weeks. No, it simply means they did life together. They they broke bread together, which refers to the celebration of the Lord's table, like we did already today. But they also prayed, and they prayed together. Let me ask you, do you pray with other people? I don't just mean your family. I mean, do you have a small group of people? When your life gets 
troubled and difficult. Is there, are there three guys that you could call men and say, hey, will you pray for me? If that, you don't have that in your life, that's bad news. Is there a regular gathering of God's people? If God were to show up in a prayer meeting, where would he show up? Would you even know where he would show up in our church if that would happen? One of the reasons we have our Sunday evening prayer gathering is for that very reason, to say, Lord, no matter how many people come, we need to pray, and we do, because this regular rhythm is important because of what it says about our dependence and about our need for God. The effect in verse 42 is that people were filled with awe. It was just a sense of amazement as to what God was doing. There's power in their ministry, that their, their, their regular commitment to seeking God together became one of the ingredients of the unusual empowerment for the advancement of the gospel. So, but I want you to know that what's happening in the book of Acts in terms of prayer is something for us to think through. That these four characteristics in Acts chapter two are the same characteristics that need to mark our church, teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Because at the end of the day, this prayer saturation, this spirit-filled dependence is not something that only belongs in the New Testament, but rather prayer is designed to be our fuel as well. It's designed to be the fuel that, that, that causes mobilization to take place where we pray for God to raise up more leaders and more people to feel called to the ministry and more people to move into Brookside and more churches that would reach out and say, can you help us? And more financial resources so that we can give more away and more young leaders so we can send them out. But church, none of that's gonna happen unless we pray. All of our strategies, all of our ideas, all of our works, it's just gonna be a sack that's completely empty unless we realize that God by his spirit could blow into the structures of ministry and God can do more in two seconds than what we could do in 20 years. Do you long to see hard-hearted people converted? Well, then you ought to pray. Do you long to see unreached peoples hear the name of Jesus and be miraculously drawn to him? Then we should pray. Do you want boldness in your home? You want the gospel to land on the heart of a son, a daughter, a friend, a, a grandson, or a granddaughter? Then you ought to, to pray. Do you need wisdom to know how to navigate your employment and how does it mean to be a, a follower of Jesus in that setting? Then you ought to pray. You want to know how to be able to connect with your neighbor and how to be a good witness in school? You ought to pray. If you come today and you have a distracted, busy heart, you ought to pray. And if you find yourself today coming to the Lord's house and you have a prayerless pattern in your life, then, oh, brother, sister, you ought to hear this word from the scriptures and from my heart. You ought to repent of self-sufficiency because at the end of the day, prayerlessness is a statement. God, I don't need you. And the reality is you do need him probably in far more ways than you ever knew. Church, I want you to listen to me carefully. God has entrusted us as a church with so many blessings. But if we neglect the work of prayer in our lives and in the church, God will not move. It'll just be words that fall, programs that fail, ideas that go nowhere. 
because prayer is still essential to the mission of multiplication. For the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of our city, for the sake of our world, we have to be committed to praying together because multiplication happens in powerful ways when God's people get serious about getting on their knees and saying, God, we need you. We desperately need you. Let's pray together. Ask our elders and pastors to come at this time. God, as we close this moment, as we acknowledge the receiving of your word, we want to have hearts that are ready to respond to you even now. And Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters who are here in this room, in this moment, whose life, if they're honest, would be characterized by prayerlessness and their self-sufficiency is plaguing their souls. And church, let me just pause right here. If that's where you're at today, man, brother, sister, you, you need to do something and the Bible calls it to repent. And that means to say, I am acknowledging that prayerlessness is true in my life. And here's what I ask you to do. I wanna pray for you, and if prayerlessness is a characteristic pattern of your life, I want you to stand and just make your standing a statement of God, I'm standing on two feet and I can't stand on my own anymore. Prayerlessness has gotta go. So if that's your testimony, I want you to stand right now. Don't wait, you've been waiting too long. Say, prayerlessness, it's gotta go. Self-sufficiency, it's a problem. Stand. Prayerlessness, it's my statement of self-sufficiency and I am not happy about it, Lord. And so, Lord, for these who would acknowledge their prayerlessness, we thank you that in your grace you can give them the ability to turn and tomorrow morning or this evening, this afternoon, pray you'd give them the grace to be able to reach out to you, to cry out to you, to ask you for mercy, for grace, and then, Lord, to so fill them with the power of the Spirit that they would sense your empowering in their lives like they've never felt before. So, Lord, give them grace, power, and strength. Thank you, Lord, for speaking today. Help us to be a church marked by prayer. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.